There we go, we're recording. Dave, welcome back for the third time now. Thank you, thanks for having me. Where's my hat-trick ball? <laughs> We've talked about this. <laughs> and I'm care. still waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I don't want to accept all my Scottish listeners by showing that line of reasoning any further, but there we are. So this is not also not the first time we've talked about transfers, and that in itself tells its own story, I think, because like, the industry is just perennially incapable, it seems, of solving the whole transfer issue. And I think it was significantly exacerbated by the the pension scam work, which was well-intentioned and important. And having your pension pot stolen is arguably worse than just having your transfer delayed or, or blocked for a few few weeks or months. But here we are. And it's. I just wanted to start with because you've been telling me about some some ongoing problems, and I'm aware that this is not anywhere close to being resolved yet. But then when you look at the Origo data, and they say the average transfer time is 10.6 days for simple transfers and 12.9 days overall, that doesn't look so bad. So what's the problem? No, you're right. That doesn't look so bad. And it's, it's an improvement. It's over previous recent years. I think, though, going back to 2019, it was even quicker. I think it was more like 7.9 days for simple transfers. However, over the last couple of years, it has been getting better for the averages. That's a good sign. The trouble we've got, I, I think, at the moment is that there's lots of outliers there. So lots of transfers are still not going through in anywhere near that time. We've seen cases that have been, have been running for up to a year. And when you just look at averages, that can be, it's a, it's a good starting point, but it can also be, be a bit misleading and forget about those outliers some are done a lot quicker you can do a transfer in, in a day or two days but we've seen ones that are taking months years and as i said with averages it can be slightly misleading i mean if elon musk walks into old trafford suddenly the average person there is a millionaire if you look at it that way and still um, isn't so, born in manchester <laughs> still isn't born in manchester no so i think i think good work has been done but I think with these averages, the important thing is that we don't just turn a blind eye. A lot of these average ones will, will take into account of transfers from, you know, the big established incumbents and they'll have a process. That's that's where the bulk of transfers are going through. Companies like Penny and other smaller, newer companies coming into the market will see these transfer times taking slightly longer. Okay, so we'll unpick a couple of the details in a moment. So what are the causal factors? You suggested there might be some common characteristics or factors driving the delays? I think due diligence checks, pension scams, maybe come on to that next. But one of the main things, and this is where it's been quite disappointing for me, having worked in pensions industry for a long time and sort of come back into it, and specifically on the transfer side of things, it's the same old problems. It's um, lack of staffing, lack of training in, in case. It's not in all companies. The majority are very good, but the, the ones that are causing problems here, lack of training, lack of lack of staffing, joined up approach. So, you know, you're chasing and they don't have access to the information to hand, even on complaints cases where they can't see actually what's happening with the transfer. It's multiple forms going out, the wrong forms going out, no forms going out, you know, classic thing, please complete this form, nothing inside duplicate forms and when you're chasing for updates yeah we've got everything we need and then two weeks later the client gets a letter saying we still need more information and it's just that joined up approach that's so frustrating and the frustrating thing not just for us we're we're second in the pecking order in this because we're the provider mm. we're the receiving scheme for the clients you hear so many of them that have made an active decision to transfer have engaged with their pension 
which a lot of them might not have looked at for a couple of years. And their experience is just being battered down at every point. Even if they have the phone, it's the classic sitting on hold for 40 minutes. And I thought that those days were gone, but it's still there with, with one or two companies and, and one or two of the bigger companies. So it's that sort of attention to detail and the client experience that's, that's still causing problems. So you said at the end there, one or two of the bigger ones still, but earlier on you'd mm. said, you know, or you sort of implied that, that where a larger provider was involved, things tend, tend to run more cleanly. And maybe I misinterpreted what you said there, but is it the case that still some of those biggest providers are poor offenders in this? Because, because arguably, you know, if you're, if you're one of the big life codes or the big platforms or whatever there's no excuse for this right yeah 100 percent. and i think where where we're talking about poor offenders this is when we come onto the due diligence check so for pension scams ensuring that the receiving scheme is you know is not a scam is there's various checks you need to go through for that and that's all completely fair and everyone supports that there's a reason why that's needed and like you said at the start there's nothing worse you'd, you'd rather wait an extra month or two than have your pension lost through a scam however the process for doing those checks varies greatly between providers and the process in terms of the setup, not just what you have to complete, but internally understanding of what the next steps are varies hugely between providers and also what the providers are looking for. So what they're deeming as an amber flag and what's triggering that, all of that is very significantly between providers and there's no consistency. And what that means is for the seeding schemes, receiving schemes, sorry, it's very hard to communicate with your with your clients to give them an understanding of what happens next, what the timescales are, expectations, so that they're not chasing us, we're not chasing the scheme, but also just make sure the process is as smooth as possible. I think that's where there needs to be a bit more consistency, but a bit more attention internally with some of these companies about the actual, you know, walk through that experience for your members of due diligence. And you're probably in, in a few cases, you're not going to be happy with that. You're not going to be happy with that experience and the information that you're providing to your teams and the situation you're putting those front facing agents in as well, who just simply, in some cases we've seen, just do not have access to information, do not know what's happening next in the journey. So cannot give clients the updates. Are you, are you saying there's a detachment from some of the management that they're just not close enough to the customer experience that they are inflicting on their customers through their detachment from, from the frontline troops? For one or two companies, 100%. Yeah, okay. So... We've talked in the past about whether a whitelist is, is feasible and mm. the recurring problem has been no one wants to take responsibility for owning that list because then if something goes wrong with the list, you're on the hook for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and tell, tell me if you think I'm, I'm wrong about that or if there's an answer to that question first. I can see why no one – well, it depends who's going to take ownership for that, but that is the problem. Someone has to take ownership and, and you're right. If something goes wrong with one of those, then you're on the hook for it. So that's an option. I think, going back to what I was saying before, it's just the consistency of approach that's needed. So my mate Phil Brown over at People's Partnership has talked about this, and he's talked about a simplification and a standardisation of that process. So I just, just want to sort of dwell there for a moment, because <laughs> from what you were just saying, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man and technology for there to be a very simple pinging process. You know, People's Partnership, to take them as an example, they've got a request from from you guys to, to transfer to you, 
it should be the press of a button and an automated response to check that you are who you are and you are who you say you are. I mean, that that, that box should get ticked in seconds, and mm-hmm. then at least they can establish that element of the equation, and then you could have further checks around, does the customer understand what they're doing? And th- those kind of deeper due diligence questions. But again, standardization yeah. of that process would surely be in everybody's interests. Definitely, and standardization of process in terms of how many members need to go through this as well. We see it with the companies that are good at communicating this and saying, look, we need you to go through the process. We're going to do a set number of these. And if we're happy with that, then that's absolutely fine. But the variance there is huge. And and getting to that point of understanding what the requirements are is hard as well. So you're 100% right. You should be able to log in, right? We know these guys are the good guys. That's absolutely fine. But separate checks on consumer understanding, understand that point as well. But having some sort of pre-approved list probably not that hard it's just the ownership of it like you say even if you never formally designate these are the you know 100 firms that we know are are safe and sound and no one takes responsibility for Mm. that if you've got that process and everybody follows that process and that gives predictability to everybody involved in the ecosystem and you know over time people's partnership get to know you guys and maybe kind of kind of sort of dial down the vigilance a little bit because they know who you are who you are so i guess my question then is someone could take ownership of the process without taking ownership of a whitelist as such and you know we're not short of contenders for that we've got you know PASA and the ABI and uh, the PLSA and STAR mm-hmm. or even the FCA yeah. i mean how hard is it for someone to to just kind of step up and say right this is what the transfer process should look like yeah and probably STAR would be a good contender for that I know the FCA is, has sort of been pushing for more vocal about the importance of STAR and calling for more companies to engage with STAR as well. So they would seem like a potential natural owner of this, and, and that would be a great first step. So a bit of consistency across the process, and that's what's needed. And perhaps some some simplification as well, because I, I get a sense, again, from, from conversations you and I have had elsewhere, that sometimes that verification process seems not just unpredictable, but also overly convoluted and excessively bureaucratic at times, yeah? Oh, 100%. So don't get me wrong. Some of the companies are really good to deal with. You get in touch with the, with the sort of teams that are managing this process. They explain what's needed, explain the next steps, and you have an open dialogue with them. And that is absolutely fantastic. And it, and it varies as well because you might have – one of the larger companies who has historic books, various different teams dealing with it, and they'll give different reasons for why they are blocking a transfer or are creating an amber flag. Things like, you know, the amber flags can be interpreted in different ways. So you can have something like a sharper, unusual rise in transfers involving the same schema advisor. I mean, we've seen that be flagged just because a company has just got around to, they, they sort of batched all your work together, all your requests, and then say, right, we're going to work on these now. We've sat on it for six months, but today we're going to work on it. And they're like, oh, we've got a big number of them. Surprise, like, surprise. Well, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you've got things like, you know, the overseas investment flag, which I know has been sort of called out. I think the TPR say, look, for an overseas equity fund, this is not what it's there to stop. Mm. But I think the guidance from the PISA guidance still sort of says, you know, the DWPP haven't been 100% clear on this. So technically, you should still follow this if it's overseas. That should create a flag and money help a call. I mean, the majority of these are, are from some, you're transferring from a similar type of fund into an overseas equity. So it's, 
there's just a bit of you know common sense and joining the dots that's needed. We've even seen it where an amber flag's been created and it's coming from the same fund to be transferred into the same fund, just a different wrapper, but the overseas flag gets raised. So that is just like the real frustration there where you're just like, come on, just join the dots here. Let's have a sensible conversation. And I think that's where things like the forums, so PSIF, so Pension Scam Industry mm-hmm. Forum, that is something which I think should be really useful if it could be made open and available to more. Because all you're trying to do here is have a conversation, have a sensible conversation, say, look, we've got concerns about your scheme. And we've had this ourselves. We say to schemes, we've got concerns about your scheme. Can you answer point A, B, C? And that's typically when you do that face to face, we do it in a forum, we do it in, a, in that sort of environment. You can resolve the issues and everyone's happy. It's where it's all sort of cloak and dagger and, you know, people don't really know what's going on. It's a little circle. I'm not sure. Have you ever seen the film Sorry, Married Map to Murderer? This <laughs> is going, that, off, that, going that, off on tangent here. Yeah. <laughs> that work has passed me by. So to remind, <laughs> right. remind me and my listeners, our listeners, uh, what, what, what's the relevance of that? This is what I always think of when, I, when I'm thinking about these sort of forums and scam forums that are sort of closed to uh, the sort of new challenges or incumbents or feel that way. In that film, there's a sort of mad Scottish father, grandfather, who, who shouts out random statements. And he, he says the world is controlled by a secret group called, I think it's the Pentaverate. And he says they meet in Colorado once a year. And it's, it involves the Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys and Colonel Saunders. And it's kind of, and they get there to, to solve all the problems of the world. And that's kind of what it feels like with this, the industry forum sometimes, that once you're in there, it's fine. You can have those sensible conversations and you can make sure that the transfers flow at a good speed and you're, you're both parties are happy with what's been provided. Until you're in that circle, it finds very hard and it's a long, drawn-out process. Okay, so you're just outside the circle of trust at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got consumer duty coming. Surely that's going to fix everything. Well, consumer duty's here. Yeah, consumer duty's here. I mean, yes, though it feels like it's still, it's it doesn't feel like it's fully up to speed. Let's put it that way. I think I think firms, the FCA might be shocked to hear this, but it feels like some firms are still embedding those processes fully into their culture and activities across firms. That may be doing them a disservice. Maybe it is fully up to speed. But okay, is consumer duty going to solve this problem, Dave? I think I would hope so because. In the rules, they talk about things like what bad outcomes would look like or what bad service would look like. And it talks about unreasonable delays. It talks about disproportionate longer waiting times and unreasonable delays on transfers or payments. And it all comes down to, you know, the outcome for the for the client as well and their understanding. And we, we've seen so many people who've started a transfer and have, have just said, look, this is too much. You know, just, they've worn me down. I give up. I cannot fill in another form. I cannot sit and halt them again. I've already done this four times. That's where it's a really bad outcome. And that's really where consumer duty should come in. Because as I said earlier, you've got people here who this might be the first time they've sort of engaged with their pensions since they signed up. And we're now stopping them or we're putting a blocker in there because we've got these these inconsistent, long drawn out processes. And I think that's really where consumer duty needs to come in to look at, you know, look at the user journey, look at what fair is, look what's needed in terms of the scam guidance, but make sure there's consistency there and make sure that the consumer, the client has all the right checks, gets the right level of understanding, but is not banging the head against the brick wall to do this. Okay, so we've got 
two thoughts ready to take away from this. One is one is consumer duty. The other is possibly an industry initiative to standardise some of those due diligence checks and transfer processes. And, and I'll be putting in a call to our friends at Star when we finish this conversation. Um, <laughs> just the other question that, that I had in my mind on this is a question that's arisen through the discussions around lifetime provider, and which which may or may not become a thing, and is but it's very much a live conversation at the moment. And one of the questions around that is if you introduce the concept of lifetime provider and we move to that kind of world, you need to make it easy for people to switch and transfer their pensions. And so the question of some sort of standardized accounts identifier similar to the six, eight-digit bank account sort code identifier used in banking, that, that idea has been discussed. So I guess two questions there. You've got a lot of experience at administering pensions and pension systems. One, is it a pipe dream to think we could ever get to that point where the whole pension system is now on a standardized protocol? And two, if we were to do that, would, would it help with the transfers at all? Ooh, standardized protocols. We're going into dashboard territory, are we, Tom? Um, personally, I think it'd be quite hard to get to that just because we know the sort of legacy of the UK pension system and, you know, how many different books are out there. I, th I think that would be a good thing to get to. I think it's going to be quite hard personally. I think the concept behind it and forcing providers to have, you know, a set timescale for transfers and that, I know 10 days has been called out. That doesn't seem like a particularly hard task. 10 days is pretty reasonable, I'd say. I think standardization of accounts, that would be great. I think reality is putting in a target of 10 days and punishing those companies that don't meet that 10 days. And that is the thing that's really going to force people's hands because we see this all the time. We'll see Origo will produce their figures, a company will be maybe bottom of the list. And then a couple of years later, they've made an improvement. They're still not there, but they've made an improvement and that's good. But to really get to that sort of what best looks like 10 days or less, I think you need to really have some sort of target and punishment for not hitting that target. I don't think 10 days is unreasonable. You've been drinking the pension B Kool-Aid, haven't you? So <laughs> the, 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 the counter argument to that is, yeah, but it's not just down to me. I'm dealing with counterparties. I don't entirely control that chain, so you can't find me because that would be unfair. What, what, what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair challenge. But, you know, if we don't try and raise the standards across the board, we're just always going to have that comparison, aren't we? And that's one of the reasons why people might not do the reporting for STAR, because they say, well, it's not just us, you know, it's, it's the counterparties as well. But the response to that, okay, should we all just sit back and wait for it to happen? And, and that's why STAR is good, because you're, you're creating accreditation. So you're, you're putting it out there and you're saying, look, we're doing our bit. I mean, our old employer, HL, a few years ago, I think they were on the naughty list. They were like 30 days for some of the transfers. They've made huge improvements now. I think they're sort of 12, 13 days from memory, have gone through the accreditation process with STAR. And that's fantastic. They're, they're making an active decision to really just improve their own processes and hope that others do the same. So I think everyone needs to kind of look at that approach, but target 10 days or thereabouts. I, I think that's the way forward. I don't think just sitting back and saying, well, it's not us, it's them. I think, you know, get your own house in order and everyone, a rising boat or tides, et cetera, everyone will improve. A rising tide or boat's not up there. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what you meant. Look, that's a good positive note to end on. Thanks, Dave. Good to talk to you again. And you. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.